gospel that reveals Jesus as the Son of God. Mark does an excellent job teaching us about who Jesus is, about what he has done, about what he has accomplished for us and the significance for our lives. And we have come to the last week in the life of Jesus in our sermon series. And what we have seen is that in the last week in the life of Jesus, he arrived in the city of Jerusalem with fanfare and proceeded to the temple in Jerusalem, which was the seat of religion uh, and worship for the Jews. And he began to teach there, but his teaching time there came with conflict. He experienced conflict with the Jewish religious leadership in Jerusalem at the temple. They were known as the Sanhedrin. They were the ruling authority. They were the temple authority. They were the ones who were meant to teach and direct worship for the Jews. They, of all people, should have been the ones most eager, ready, prepared to receive the Son of God, the Messiah, when he arrived. Sadly, they did not receive him well. Instead, they, they received him with hostility. They opposed him. They sought to undermine him. And so in the last week, in the life of Jesus, there was conflict between Jesus and the Jewish religious leadership. And what we are going to see in our passage this morning is that after this conflict took place in Jerusalem at the temple, Jesus left the temple for the last time. And we're going to see that as Jesus and his disciples were departing, one of his disciples made a comment to Jesus about the temple building itself, prompting a surprising response from Jesus, which in turn led to a lengthy discourse about some weighty matters. Admittedly, this chapter is a little bit challenging to understand. Part of the reason it is hard to understand is that in his discourse, Jesus spoke of events that would happen in the near future on a local and global scale, as well as events that would happen in the distant future on a cosmic scale. On the one hand, he spoke of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the worldwide proclamation of the gospel, and the reality of trials and persecution. On the other hand, he spoke of the transformation of the cosmos and the coming of the Son of Man. We have broken up chapter 13 into two sermons, so next week, Pastor Sam will be preaching the second half of the chapter, focusing on the coming of the Son of Man. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. So I'm going to go ahead and read that now, and I'd encourage you to follow along. Again, that is Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. 
but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those, the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand." When Jesus left the temple for the final time, one of his disciples called attention to the magnificent building. He made a comment that any one of us might make if we were able to visit that temple. Look at these buildings. Look how big they are. Look how glorious they are. Look how beautiful they are. This is amazing. After all, Herod the Great had expanded the size of the temple to about double the size of the temple built by Solomon. It was considered one of the architectural wonders of the Roman world. James Edwards writes, In Jesus' day, the temple had already been under construction for 50 years and was still unfinished. At no place was Herod the Great's obsession with grandeur and permanence more apparent than in Jerusalem. Herod enlarged Solomon's temple to an esplanade measuring some 325 meters wide by 500 meters long, with a circumference of nearly a mile. The immense 35-acre enclosure could accommodate 12 football fields. The magnitude of the Temple Mount and the stones used to construct it exceed in size any other temple in the ancient world. So even though it probably bothered them that Herod the Great was the one responsible for expanding the temple to such a magnificent size, the Jews still took great pride in this incredible building. Their identity as a people and their nationalistic pride was closely tied to the temple in Jerusalem. So you can imagine how shocking and troubling it must have been for the disciples when Jesus said, you see this great building? Not one of these stones is going to be left upon another. In other words, what you take pride in, what you find your identity in, it's going to be destroyed. It's all coming down. Jesus predicted that this glorious temple was going to be completely and utterly destroyed. The destruction would be so complete that not one stone would be left on another. And clearly the disciples could not quickly forget or dismiss what Jesus said. After they had crossed the Kidron Valley and made their way to the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him a, a follow-up question. They wanted to know 
when will these things happen and what will be the signs that these things are about to happen? And when they asked these questions, they likely believed that the destruction of the temple would happen at the end of human history as we know it. They associated the destruction of the temple with the end of times. But the response of Jesus to their questions reveals that they weren't asking the right questions. They wanted to know when this prophecy would come to pass, but Jesus directed their focus to how they should live in light of the prophecy. In verses 5 through 8, he began to warn them of things to come, and his exhortations were, do not be led astray and do not be alarmed. He said there will be messianic pretenders who came in his name and claimed, I am he. And there were numerous examples of this in the first century, And sadly, these pretenders did lead many Jews astray. He also told them not to be alarmed by the international affairs, wars, and disasters that were coming. He told them that there would be rumors of war and actual conflicts between nations. Moreover, there would be earthquakes and famines. But he also told them that when those things happened, it did not signal that the end had arrived. As a matter of fact, he described them only as the beginning of birth pains. He taught them that bad things of various kinds impacting Christians and non-Christians alike would take place, but that would not mean the end had arrived, and they should not be alarmed as if something was happening outside the sovereign will of the Lord. The word alarmed speaks to the state of fear and surprise. He did not want them to be surprised when terrible things happened as if these bad things were happening outside of God's plans. He did not want them to be fearful of these bad things happening as if these bad things could somehow separate them from the love of God or prevent them from receiving the fulfillment of God's promises. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, God has promised us that he is with us. Jesus promised his disciples, I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He is always with us. Moreover, he has made us great and precious promises that no one can take from us. He has promised us a future with him in his glorious kingdom where we will receive new and glorious bodies transformed in such a way that we will no longer experience sin or the effects of sin. We will no longer experience sickness or disease. We will no longer experience sadness, sorrow. Death will be no more. We will experience joy and love and peace and the sweet presence of the Lord for all of eternity. And no bad things that happen in this life can prevent us from receiving those promises. And therefore, we should not be fearful when bad things happen. He has promised us that He is with with us, and He has promised us that He will deliver on His promises. Brothers and sisters, therefore, we are not to be alarmed when bad things happen, and we are not to be fearful In John chapter 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus guaranteed his disciples that they would have trouble in this world. He said you ought to expect 
that there will be trouble in this world. But it ought not cause you to fear or despair because Jesus said, I have overcome the world. We will face trouble in the world, but we don't have to fear because Jesus has overcome the world and we have been united to Him. We belong to Him. Jesus went on to exhort them to be on your guard. One commentator said another way of saying be on your guard is you must be clear in your own mind. The reason Jesus told his disciples to be on your guard or to be clear in your own mind was because the disciples were about to face persecution. He did not exhort them so they would find a way to completely avoid the persecution, but so they would be faithful in and through the persecution. He told them that they would be brought before councils, beaten in synagogues, stand before governors and kings for the sake of Jesus. Their suffering would not be without purpose. Rather, their suffering would provide unprecedented opportunities to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their witness to councils, governors, and kings would be a means of the gospel being proclaimed to all nations. And Jesus said the gospel must first be preached to all nations. The gospel must be preached to all nations, and persecution has oftentimes been the means by which the gospel has spread. What Jesus was describing in these verses played out in the book of Acts, in the, in the life of the early church. When persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, Christians spread out throughout Judea, and the gospel began to spread to all nations. We see the apostles bearing witness before councils, governors, and kings. We see the gospel spread across ethnic, socioeconomic, and all kinds of cultural barriers. We see the apostles being brought before the councils, and in those moments, the Holy Spirit gave them the words to say that they might testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. And the reason we see these things taking place is because the Holy Spirit was at work in and through the church. What we see in the book of Acts is the Spirit-empowered ministry of the gospel. And the Spirit-empowered ministry of the gospel led to the spread of the gospel. It led to the testimony of the gospel before all kinds of rulers. It led to the church to persevere in spite of persecution. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. And we see that delivered in the book of Acts. Jesus went on to warn them that faithfulness to him would not only lead to persecution from the world, but would even cause division within families. Divisions so severe that family members would hand over other family members even to be put to death. He wrapped up the persecution discussion by saying, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Not exactly the best sales pitch for being a disciple of Jesus. Come and follow me and everybody's going to hate you. You're going to face persecution. You're going to face troubles. It was not the best sales pitch, but we ought to appreciate that Jesus was forthright, that he told the truth, that he prepared us beforehand for what it would cost to follow him. Jesus gave somewhat of a bleak forecast to his disciples. But the end of these dire predictions regarding what would happen to the disciples uh, in the, after the dire prediction, he reminded them of the glorious future that awaited them. He said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
will be saved. We will experience the glorious salvation of Jesus. We will experience the transformation of our bodies. We will experience the new heaven and the new earth. We will experience an eternity apart from sin and pain and sorrow and death. We will experience the glorious presence of Christ. We will be finally and fully free. He holds out the promise of salvation, saying, yes, you're going to suffer. Yes, you'll face trouble. Yes, there will be persecution. Yes, you'll be hated, but it will be worth it. The salvation that we will experience will be worth all of the suffering, all of the troubles we experience in this life, in this world, in its present form. So, in the first part of Mark 13, Jesus turned the attention of the disciples away from trying to predict exactly when certain events would transpire and instead focused their attention on persevering in their faith. James Edwards writes, The premium of discipleship is placed not on predicting the future, but on faithfulness in the present, especially in trials, adversity, and suffering. The Lord calls us to faithfully follow Jesus in the midst of all kinds of trial, adversity, and suffering. In verses 14 through 23, Jesus began to speak of a particular disaster that was coming. He spoke of the abomination of desolation, standing where it ought not to be, which would lead to suffering of an unprecedented magnitude. And when he spoke of the abomination of desolation, he was using language from the book of Daniel. We see this, for example, in Daniel's chapter 9 and 12. In, Jan in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, we read, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And in chapter 12, verse 11, the prophet said, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Many Jews and some Bible scholars believed that the prophecy in Daniel pointed to a crisis brought on by Antiochus IV in 167 BC, who marched into the temple in Jerusalem, erected a statue of the Greek god Zeus, and sacrificed a pig on the altar of incense. But some Bible scholars believe Daniel's prophecy was pointing further ahead to what happened in A.D. 70. And when Jesus spoke of the abomination of desolation, he was most likely referring to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70, which he had already referenced in verse 2. It's possible he may also have been referring to a future time anticipated by the destruction of the temple when a terrible antagonist or antichrist would arise and unleash a severe tribulation on the people of God, which would in turn usher in the return of Christ. What he describes in these verses does seem to point to what would take place in the year A.D. 70. Now, most of us might be a little bit fuzzy on what actually took place in A.D. 70. What happened when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem? 
Now keep in mind, this was about 30 to 35 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what took place really began in the year A.D. 66. These events really transpired between A.D. 66 and A.D. 70. I want to read to you what one historian wrote about these events so we can get a better idea of what took place and what Jesus was referring to. So listen to what one historian wrote about the events from A.D. 66 to A.D. 70. Gessius Florus loved money and hated Jews. As Roman procurator, he ruled Judea, earning, uh, caring little for their religious sens sensibilities. When tax revenues were low, he seized silver from the temple. As the uproar against him grew in AD 66, he sent troops into Jerusalem who massacred 3,600 citizens. Florus's action uh, touched off an explosive rebellion, the first Jewish revolt that had been sizzling for some time. The Jewish revolt began and met its bitter end at Masada, a hunk of rock overlooking the Dead Sea. The Romans had built a virtually impregnable fortress there, yet the atrocities of Florus inspired some zealots to attack Masada. Ama amazingly, they won, slaughtering the Roman army there. In Jerusalem, the temple captain signified solidarity with the revolt by stopping the daily sacrifices to Caesar. Soon all Jerusalem was in an uproar, expelling or killing the Roman troops. Then all Judea was in revolt, then Galilee. Cestius Callus, the Roman governor of the region, marched from Syria with 20,000 soldiers. He besieged Jerusalem for six months, yet failed. He left 6,000 dead Roman soldiers not to mention weaponry that the Jewish defenders picked up and used. Emperor Nero then sent Vespasian, a decorated general, to quell the Judean rebellion. Vespasian put down the opposition in Galilee, then in Transjordan, then in Idumea. He circled in on Jerusalem. But before the coup de grace, Nero died. Vespasian became embroiled in a leadership struggle that concluded with the Eastern armies calling for him to be emperor. One of his first imperial acts was to appoint his son Titus to conduct the Jewish war. By now, Jerusalem was isolated from the rest of the nation, and factions within the city fought over strategies of defense. As the siege wore on, people began dying from starvation and plague. The high priest's wife, who once basked in luxury, scavenged for crumbs in the streets. Meanwhile, the Romans employed new war machines to hurl boulders against the city walls. Battering rams assaulted the fortifications. Jewish defenders fought all day and struggled to rebuild the walls at night. Eventually, the Romans broke through the outer wall, then the second wall, and finally the third wall. Still, the Jews fought, scurrying to the temple as their last line of defense. That was the end of their valiant Jewish, uh, for the valiant Jewish defenders and for the temple. Historian Josephus claimed that Titus wanted to preserve the temple, but his soldiers were so angry at their resilient opponents that they burned it. The remaining Jews were slaughtered or sold as slaves. Again, what we read in Mark chapter 13, verses 23, seems to clearly point to this event. It describes a, an incredibly tragic, horrific time where there was tremendous suffering, bloodshed, and death. In an article from Ligonier, we read, it seems incontrovertible that Titus's actions were the specific fulfillment of Jesus' warning in Mark 13, 14 about the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. After all, the parallel verse in Matthew 24, 15 says that the abomination would stand in the holy place, a clear reference to the temple. Christ told the disciples that when they saw the abomination, they were to flee the city. 
They were not to return from the field for their possessions if they were out working the crops. If they were on the roof of their home, they were not to enter the home before fleeing. Rather, they were to scurry down the outdoor staircases and flee. The flight would be so perilous that winter travel would be difficult and pregnant women would find it hard to keep up. Josephus, the Jewish historian who gives us the clearest first-hand account of Jerusalem's fall, reports that the Jewish Christians in Judea heeded Jesus' warning. When the city and temple fell, more than one million Jews died. But Jewish Christians, by and large, were not among them, for they had already fled the city when they saw the Romans coming. So when Jesus talked about these things in Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 23, he seemed to be talking about these very events, and it seems as though the followers of Jesus heeded his words and fled when they were supposed to flee. And what seems to be the clear fulfillment of Mark 13, 14 through 23 does not necessarily rule out a future fulfillment of these verses for which the events of A.D. 70 serve as a paradigm. It's possible there are future events that the destruction of the temple point to. But regardless of what we conclude about that, the exhortation of Jesus to be on guard, lest they would be led astray, remains a relevant exhortation for us today. So what should we take away from these passages? Well, if we get caught up in trying to interpret current events in order to decipher when Jesus will return, then we have clearly missed the point. Jesus taught these things to prepare his disciples for what would come. He wanted to prepare his disciples for what would come so that they would not be surprised, so that they would not be fearful, so that they would not be led astray, and so that they would not give up. Bad things would happen on a global scale that impact everyone. Expect bad things to happen. There would also be those who would attempt to lead disciples away from faithfulness to Jesus. Imposters and false teachers. Moreover, persecution would come specifically to Christians because of their faith in Jesus. In the midst of all this, he wanted his disciples then and now to know that none of the trials and tribulations we experience happen outside the sovereign will of God. Moreover, he wants us to know that he is with us through the trials and he will deliver on all of his good promises. And therefore, we are to be a people who are characterized by hope and joy even in the midst of troubles and trials, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. We are able to be people who are characterized by hope and joy even in the midst of troubles because we know that the troubles in this world will pass away, but his kingdom will remain forever. And we belong to his kingdom. Peter wrote to Christians in the first century who were experiencing trials. As a matter of fact, he described them as fiery trials. But I want you to listen to what he said to Christians who were living in the midst of fiery trials. Listen to what he said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness 
and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He said, if you suffer for righteousness sake, if you suffer for Jesus, you're blessed. You shouldn't complain because you're blessed. He said, don't be fearful, don't be troubled, troubled by evildoers. Be faithful to Jesus and be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Do you see the assumption that is in those words? The assumption is that followers of Jesus will be so characterized by hope, even in the midst of trouble and persecution, that people will take notice of our hope and they will ask us the reason for the hope. Is your life characterized by hope to the degree that people want to know why you have the hope that you have? When was the last time someone asked you the reason for your hope? Brothers and sisters, are our lives characterized by joy and hope or are they uh, characterized by complaining and despair? Are we down in the mouth or are we joyful and hopeful in Jesus? If people were to observe you, what would they see? You see, as followers of Jesus, we know that we will face trouble. We know that bad things will happen. We know that there will be persecution. But we also know the end. We know the end of the story. And that anchors us in our hope. That anchors us in our joy. That strengthens us to persevere. And therefore, as followers of Jesus, let us be people who are so full of hope that people take notice that people want to know why and when that happens we'll have the opportunity to bear witness to the gospel of jesus christ that is what we are called to do bear witness to the gospel of jesus christ and we are able to do so in a particularly profound way when we have hope and joy, even in the midst of troubles, trials, suffering, and persecution. May that be true of us, and may we bring glory to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you prepared us for the reality, the realities of this world, for the realities of following you. But we also thank you that you have taught us what we can expect. We thank you for the wonderful future that you have promised us. We thank you that you are always with us. You never leave us, you never forsake us. We pray that we will be a people characterized by joy and hope to the degree that people will take notice and want to know why. May we faithfully and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to persevere to the end. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue our time of worship.